Well, our scripture reading for this morning, um, our sermon passage for this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So I would encourage you to turn there or click the link in your digital bulletin. Do what you need to do to get to Colossians chapter 3 and follow along and check what I'm saying against God's word. Let's read that. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it mean to live as a Christian? You know, we often spend a lot of time discussing what it means to be a Christian or to become a Christian, but maybe we don't spend as much time talking about what it means to live as a Christian. That's an important distinction. Let me give you an example. Suppose someone asks you how to become an American. What would you tell them? Well, you might help them do a little research and discover that, among other things, you have to apply for a green card and live in the United States for a period of time. You have to have a fairly clean record. You have to pass a test, and you must renounce your allegiance to any other country. But what if someone asked you instead, not how do you become an American, but how do you live like an American? How would you answer? Well, your answer, I suspect, would be quite a bit different. You'd talk about American culture, the things Americans typically do. You would talk about grilling outdoors, the uniquely American sports of football and baseball, our disdain for being told what to do by the government, our fiercely independent streak. You'd probably talk a lot about general patterns because America is a diverse nation and no two Americans are alike. We generally like to have some sort of plan, and even the most unregimented parts of, uh, of our culture in America seem like slaves to the clock to many others in other cultures. Um, we tend to work hard for five days and play hard or crash hard for two. 
And while we'll flex a few degrees from person to person, we generally want to be about 70 degrees, whether it is a frigid February or a balmy August. And if you get really detailed, you might point out that there are some things that Americans just don't do that if they did those things, they might not be considered to be an American anymore, like committing treason or fighting in a foreign country's military. Now, of course, living like an American can be a fun cultural experience for a foreigner, but living like an American doesn't make a person an American any more than living like a Christian makes a person a Christian. But we do expect that a person who is an American, that they fit a general pattern of our culture. Now, of course, this is an imperfect analogy. Uh, by its very nature, be, being an American means a whole lot of freedom to do as you please. And the same can't quite be said for a Christian. Christians are not a people who can simply do as they please because Christians live to do as God pleases. Christians actually have a specific positive calling to lead a new type of life. Last week in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23, we saw how Christ was the one who raises Christians from their former and dead way of life. It contained the heart of the Christian message in that passage, the essence of what it means to be a Christian and how to become a Christian. In that passage, we heard hints of Paul combating false teachers who may have been demanding that Christians in the city of Colossae adopt certain habits and practices in order to become truly spiritual, truly holy. And Paul insinuates that... In that, well, he insinuates in that passage that those strategies of these false teachers are of no help. But that's not the same thing as saying that those who have become Christians don't need to live new lives. They do. They have a heavenly calling. The false teachers were demanding a legalistic or a law-based, a rule-based way to live, which wasn't the gospel way to live. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17, teaches us the gospel way of the Christian life. It teaches us that heavenly living begins with worldly dying. Heavenly living begins with worldly dying. This morning, we're going to examine the nature of this heavenly calling and then look at the two things that Christians must do to live the heavenly Christian life. Now, the heavenly calling of Christians is laid out in verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So this is the heavenly calling, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. This command is addressed to Christians, those who have been raised with Christ. Paul is assuming his audience is Christian, so that's an important point, because if you try to do what the rest of this passage is saying, and you aren't a Christian, it will fail. And not only will it fail, but it might crush your soul, because the things that it's talking about are impossible outside of God's power in Christ. So let's talk about that. What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is a person who knows that he or she is a bad person. 
A Christian is someone who knows that he or she is a sinner and has done things that offend God. A Christian is a person who knows that he is totally incapable of making himself right in God's eyes. But a Christian is also a person who knows that Jesus lived righteously and made payment for her sins on the cross, dying in her place. In doing that, Jesus turned away God's anger and his own righteousness gets placed on the account of the person who trusts in him and what he did. Jesus died on the cross, but he rose again to new life because the weight of our sins was not enough to hold him down. And those who become Christians benefit and participate in Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what a Christian is. In the process of becoming a Christian, God gives the Christian a new heart, like we read in Ezekiel. The old heart of stone was dead. It didn't work. It didn't beat for God. The new heart is alive and pumping blood for the sake of Jesus. And because it's alive, it can respond to God in faith and turn away from its old dead life. Does that describe you? If it does, then this passage speaks directly to you. If it doesn't describe you, that means you're not a Christian. But you too can become a Christian, and and I pray you will. And if you're not a Christian, perhaps God's word in Colossians 3 will awaken your soul to a new and better way of living and persuade you to follow Jesus. But this is what a Christian is. It's a, per- it's a person who has participated in Jesus' resurrection by being made truly alive. And those who fit into this category are supposed to live lives characterized by a heavenly calling, seeking the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. First and foremost in the heavenly realm is Jesus himself, who after his resurrection ascended to the right hand of the Father, And so the first, most important, most significant heavenly thing we must seek is always Christ himself. And everything flows from that. The Christian must seek Christ above all else and certainly above anything that is on earth. More than romance, more than money, more than family, more than children, more than jobs, more than pastimes, more than hobbies, more than our social lives. Jesus above all. Without a doubt, this season might be a test for many Christians whether they are truly seeking Christ above all. If we're seeking Christ above all, the the beauty of that is that He can't be taken from us. He is with us always. He is always available. And he doesn't deny those who are his own. But if we are living significantly for the pleasures of this world and what this life has to offer, well then, we might be growing impatient. We might be growing frustrated with life right now. We long to shop at that store or hang out with that friend or hug that family member or see that movie on the big screen, or hit that bar. Maybe the longing is more acute. You're, you're out of work. You're worried about your savings. You've lost someone you cared about. And these are all real and valid concerns. But their loss 
will tell us much about what our hearts are ultimately seeking, whether it is Christ or the world. Could it be that God has stripped you of some of your most cherished pursuits in this season, some of your daily comforts to remind you that you have forgotten to cherish him? Now, this command to heed our heavenly calling is rooted in the fact that we have died. If we enjoy Christ's resurrected life, it means we've also been crucified with Christ on the cross. A Christian isn't just one who is truly alive. A Christian is one who has died. And we need to get what Paul says here. Your life is hidden in Christ. That means everything of ultimate value and significance and meaning is tied up with Christ. And he's in heaven. So focus on that. Now, at times, it might not seem like there's much life here, but that's okay. That's normal. It's even expected because our life is with Christ. And he will appear again at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. For the Christian, he is our life. So that when he appears, we will be translated into his glory and fully embrace all the wonders of eternal life with him. At that time, all the worldly pleasures we tried to live for will be burned away forever. None of them will last. They will all be forgotten. So seek the things above. Seek Christ. Because in him there will be a rich reward on that last day. And nothing we strive for here will be with us there. And that's a pretty good grounds for pursuing this heavenly calling. So when we think about seeking Christ... That's a really nice shorthand for what Christians call sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more holy. And we become more holy as we conform our lives more and more to the pattern of Jesus. How do we do that? Well, the next 14 verses of this passage dig into that question, and they're divided by two opposite sets of commands. We can call these things the, the two sides of the heavenly calling coin. They go hand in hand. On one side of the coin is how we do away with our old worldly habits. And on the other side of the coin is how we acquire new Christian habits. On one side, we get rid of sin. And on the other side, we add holiness. So let's look at each side. <clears throat> the first side of the coin is set out in a very stark, very blunt command. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Paul says that whatever that is in you that belongs to your old way of life, and if, if you're a convert or, or simply you belong to the world's cultures and, and values, all those things... Uh, uh, those things have to be killed. So if you're, if you're a convert, then everything that was in your past life has to die. Um, if you're not a convert, if you just sort of raised up in the church, the same thing still happens. You have to kind of analyze what in your culture, is, what doesn't come from the Christian calling, what came from your cultural upbringing, and those things must be killed. They must be mortified. They must be executed. 
It's an active command, and it requires an active commitment on the part of the Christian. It's not a passive command. It doesn't say that God will put these things to death in you, so don't worry. Certainly, God empowers the process, and there's a sense in which we can say God is the one doing it, but it does here call on the Christian to be active. To quote John Owen in his book of the mortification of sin in believers, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But what belongs to the earthly in us? What, what things do we need to kill, Paul? Before we discuss how we kill sin, we ought to make sure we know sin when we see it. The problem with sin is that it's so embedded in our culture sometimes that we don't recognize it as sin. We see it as just part of being American, part of being human. This is true if you're a convert to Christianity or if you grew up with Christianity. So Paul gives us a list of sins that were particularly embedded in the culture of the Colossians. And it's helpful for us because these are sins that are pretty well embedded in our own culture as well. It begins with five, and let's, we'll take them in turn. We need to make sure we understand what all these terms are in this passage. He's got a lot of them. Sexual immorality. It translates the word porneia. And that's where we get words like porn and pornography. It's a general word for illicit sexual activity. And for those in a Christian context, reading the Christian scriptures, it would include all the many specific prohibitions found in the Old Testament law. To summarize that material, sexual activity was designed by God to take place only in the confines of the marriage of one man to one woman. Any sexual activity that was, in this way, extramarital, outside the sphere of a man and woman engaged in marriage, is expressly prohibited by God and would fall under the category of sexual immorality. Greco-Roman culture was generally promiscuous and licentious, with nearly every imaginable type of sex celebrated culturally, philosophically, and even religiously. Maybe that sounds familiar. It's a sin that has to be killed. Impurity generally means the corruption that comes from sexual immorality, and so it implies much the same as the first term. Passion refers to desire, and you might have guessed it, specifically immoral sexual desire. That's significant. Many many people, even many Christians, think that holiness is not doing certain things. But holiness is as much internal as it is external. It's not merely killing the outward actions, but it's killing the underlying desires. Passion is the sexual appetite that drives a person to consume more. It fuels Americans' addiction to pornography, which is evidence of an unsated desire for more. So whether it's magazines or videos or websites, those are merely an external manifestation of an unsated, unquenched desire for gratification. Evil desire is like it, but a little bit more general. And so Paul seems to be moving out there. But you see, Paul wants to get at the heart. 
He's getting at the heart of it. He's not just dealing with the externalities, not just dealing with the external actions, but the heart that fuels those external actions. And the point of these two words here is that we must not just put to death our illicit sexual activity, but we also must kill our desire for illicit sexual gratification. We must cherish Christ more than we pine for pleasure. And that's a a nice bridge to the last term, covetousness, which is a, a general desire for anything that we don't have, but it's also a summary of the other words. And boy, do Americans have a coveting problem. We want and we want and we want and we don't have. And that's a problem because whether it's sexual craving or it's some other craving, it means we're just not satisfied with Jesus. It means that Jesus isn't enough for us. We want Jesus plus. We want Jesus and. And so we show that really we worship something else besides Jesus, something else alongside of Jesus, and often sometimes more than Jesus. And that is idolatry. So it's no wonder that Paul says that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. That's strong language. Wrath is is God's furious anger. God's furious anger is going to be poured out on this world and the people in it because of these sorts of sins, these kinds of sins that Colossian Christians used to practice. They were part of the Colossians' world. Few of the Colossian Christians, if any, were born into the faith. They were almost all converts. They had lived awful lives before this. And now those things had to die. Christian living, the heavenly calling, needed to be radically different. But then Paul turns to other sins that are part of the earthly way of life that must die. Here he uses another idea. Rather than kill, he says put away. Or perhaps a better translation would be to take off. It's a word that often means something like undress, like taking off clothing. And these sins, these sins that they had been doing were how they were dressing themselves. But, but now they need to take off those filthy rags. Grant Osborne helpfully explains it this way. He writes, In the ancient world in which the average person might have owned only a single garment and robes became a part of one's inheritance, this was a particularly strong image. Clothes would have had to be in dreadful shape to warrant their being thrown away. An apt metaphor for the terrible nature of sin's filth. Again, the idea is active. We have to participate in it. We must do something. We must take off anger, wrath. They mean what they sound like. Of course, there is a righteous anger as God's in verse 6. And there are times and places for that. But but most human anger is misplaced. It's misplaced because it's mostly self-centered. And we are not as important as we like to think ourselves. We're usually angry when I or my interests are upset. And my anger is typically disproportionate to the offense. And what's more, our anger usually forgets, usually forgets that above all the circumstances of this life is a righteous judge, Jesus, 
who will set all offenses straight. Think about the last time you were angry about something, miffed about something. If you had known in that moment that what you were angry about was going to get remedied in an appropriate amount of time to your total satisfaction, would you have gotten angry at all? I'm guessing probably not. But that's exactly what Jesus promises to those who belong to them. He is going to set things right at the appropriate time to our full satisfaction. That's an amazing promise. So acting out in rage and anger is not a Christian mode of living because it is the mode of someone who doesn't trust Jesus to do what's right. But again, Paul wants to get to the heart of the matter, and so he includes malice. Malice is the underlying ill will or hatred that easily erupts into anger. It's the way many of us Americans feel about the other political party, the other religious group, the other ethnic group. Some of us feel it toward intellectuals, and some of us feel it toward the uneducated. Some of us feel it toward the elites, and others feel it toward the blue-collar workers. It's that simmering water that's just ready to burst all over as soon as someone adds some steel-cut oats to the top. But then these last three are, are sins of speech. Slander is speaking ill of a person to, to cause them harm whether social harm or otherwise. In short, it's, it's what a lot of us spend time doing on social media. Now, now, Paul does not mean truthfully calling out a person's evils or crimes. There's, there's a place for that. And Paul himself does it elsewhere. But slander is about using our tongue or our typing to attack a person's reputation with the aim of disparaging that person. And it's unfit for Christians. Christians should be people of truth who respect the dignity of all people, even their worst enemies, and so it must be put to death. Likewise, obscene talk. It probably on some level refers to what we think of as obscenities, but that can be hard to nail down with any sort of precision. More generally, it's abusive, aggressive language, particularly directed at another person. And then in a separate command, Paul says, don't lie to one another. Of course, Christians shouldn't lie to anyone, but there's something more sinister about lying to one's own family. And Christians have been called into a new family in Christ. It should be a truth-telling community. And that's Paul's argument here. And he, and he backs it up with another thought of taking off clothing. They've taken off the old self or the old man, and they put on a new self or a new man. What does that mean? It means that they were part of the earthly, sin-tainted image of humanity, descendants both by ancestry and by deeds of that first sinner, Adam. But now we have to put on Christ. We are part of the new man, Jesus. And so in him, we are being made to resemble him as a community, together, as a church. That's, what, that's why Paul says here, he, he uses the word here. He says, here there is neither Jew nor Gentile, because he means the church. Here there is no distinction between all the boundaries the world sets up that govern human relationships. Instead, in the church, our relationships are defined by our being in Christ. 
And that means our community must look radically different. We have a special obligation to put to death and to take off the old way of life. How do we do that? How do we do that? I warned you, if you're not a Christian, this is going to feel like a lot of law. It's going to feel like a lot of do's and don'ts. And it's going to be futile for you. But if you're a Christian, we have a promise. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death the deeds of the body, a positive command, an active command, by the Spirit. See, the Spirit is our, our secret weapon. He's our secret power. You see, the false teachers in, uh, were telling the Colossians to stop sinning by, by making them obey rules and perform certain religious works. But true life changes the work of the Spirit, and it comes from dying to our old way of life. Maybe the most practical step of putting things to death by the Spirit, we might call spiritual replacement. See, the, the basic idea of repentance, which is where the Christian life begins, but certainly not where it ends, the basic idea of repentance is not to stop sinning. Sometimes, maybe you heard some fire and brimstone preacher tell you, you got to repent, and, and you understood that. i got to stop this sin. But that's not what it means. It means to turn away from sin and turn towards something else, namely God and His goodness and His good things. Tim Keller writes, what you need to drive out an old passion is a new passion, a greater passion. What you need is an overmastering positive passion. In short, what he's saying is that if you want to stop smoking, for instance, you have to replace it with something else you desire more than smoking. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's saving money. Maybe it's your own ego, how you present yourself. Whatever it is, there has to be something you desire more than the smoking. Otherwise, you may push for a little bit, but then you'll hit a wall and you'll go back to smoking. For Keller, as for any Christian, that overmastering positive passion is Christ. If we desire Christ more than anything, then we can replace our desire for sexual fulfillment with a desire for Christ. We can replace our desire to lash out in anger with a desire for Christ. We can replace our desire to get what we want with our desire for Christ. And so we kill sin. And that brings us to the other side of the coin. Because Paul doesn't suggest we merely strip off our old filthy rags and run around naked. No, if we, if we did that, we'd get cold and embarrassed and uncomfortable, and inevitably, we start scratching around to find those rags again. Instead, he says we have an obligation to put on, as a new set of clothes, a new set of Christ-centered behaviors. He could have said, quite simply, put on Christ. And in fact, Paul uses that exact expression in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, and Romans 13, verse 14. And so I think everything what we see in this paragraph <clears throat> is an example of what it means to seek the heavenly things, to seek Christ, to desire Christ above all. These are the characteristics of Christ. And so we put on Christ and take off the old. 
Whereas in the last paragraph, Paul is suggesting taking things off here. He flips it and says, put these things on. Now, a caution again, for those who have not died with Christ, you can't do this. You can approximate it, sort of like a tourist from a foreign country attempting to live like an American while they're here. They don't ever quite get it right. And even if they pulled off fairly convincingly, it's inauthentic and eventually you have to go home. So if you try to do this apart from Christ, you're just a rule follower. And rule following will not get you to the heavenly places where Christ is because you're not that good of a rule follower. None of us are. And so with that in mind, Paul reminds his readers who they are. They're God's elect, God's chosen ones. If you're a Christian, God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. That's exactly word for word what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. That's the summary form that we have here in Colossians. We have the same words, holy, beloved, chosen. Christians have been chosen by God, been set apart as holy by God, and been loved by God. It's not only a good reminder, it's a great motivator for what he's about to say. So remember, Christian, who you are and what Christ has done for you. Here what he, here's what he lists out. Put on compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts is mostly what it sounds like. Literally, the old King James translates it bowels of mercy, which is kind of awesome, but sort of lost on our modern ears. Mercy is a helpful word, though, as it's the sort of compassion that's in view. It's not a sappy sympathy, but a manly mercy with a tender heart. And it's moved to assist those in need. Kindness is the, the action that the inner compassionate heart produces. It's the, the niceness that we do to one another. Humility is that uniquely Christian virtue of considering others of higher value than your own self. It wasn't really regarded very highly in the ancient world, as it was seen maybe more fit for slaves and servants. The Christians know we are servants. Not just servants, but servants of the great servant, Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for us. Humility, though, should not be understood to mean servile or weak. The person who, of humility is not a pushover. It's not an outward humility either, which is hypocrisy, but truly an attitude of looking out for others' interests ahead of our own. Likewise, meekness is the next word there. Meekness isn't weakness, but an appropriate appraisal of one's own self-worth. It's considering oneself small, but I'd say that's an appropriate appraisal of one's self-worth because as we look at ourselves in light of who Christ is, we ought to feel a bit small. So if humility is thinking about others more highly than you should, or uh, uh, thinking of others more highly than yourself, sorry, the meekness is thinking of yourself appropriately, smallly. Likewise, patience and bearing with one another go hand in hand. God has been infinitely patient with us and, and put up with far more than we will ever put up with from anyone or anything. And, and we should likewise endure with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that means being quick to forgive. After all, we will never forgive more than Jesus has forgiven us. Paul then mentions love. Love is the binding agent of all these other things. 
Love for the Christian is the self-sacrificing commitment to the other. It's exemplified in Jesus sacrificing everything of himself for the sake of those who hated him. Sinners like me. It's the layer of clothing on top of all the others. It's the crowning jewel of our wardrobe. The, things that pe- the thing that people will experience most outwardly. And then Paul adds a couple things in, in quick succession here. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. That's an interesting expression that, that exemplifies how different the Christian community is to look. The word for rule, as, as Doug Moo puts it, is, it, it refers to the activity of the umpire who renders verdicts in contested situations. The peace of Christ is, at first, and, and most importantly, it's the peace we have with God because of Christ's work on the cross. But that overflows secondarily into an inner peace that we have because of our confident standing with God. That peace is to be our umpire in any and all disputes. We are to allow that peace to render its verdict. When we have conflict with other Christians, we can operate from a spirit of knowing that we are both in God's good keeping and that this good comfort allows us to let go of any conflicts in this life. Animosity doesn't need to reign. Contention doesn't need to reign because peace reigns. And be thankful, Paul says. Thankfulness is an appropriate remedy to our worldly cravings. Because if we're thankful to God for what we do have and what he's done for us, the other things seem rather tiny, don't they? There's one final command here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I once heard this preached by a man I I quite respect, and, and he suggested that the way you do this, or at least one easy way you can do this, is to memorize Scripture. And that's a wonderful habit, but I think he missed the point. Because this passage tells us what it means to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and it ignores the fact that the you here is plural. The Word of Christ does include Scripture, certainly, but the Word of Christ is the Gospel, precisely. The good news of what Jesus has done for us. And like I said, the you is not singular, it's plural. And we could bring this out a little bit better if we translated it, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Let the gospel dwell among you richly. How do we do that? Well, we do it by teaching and admonishing one another. Notice the reciprocal nature of that. This is something we do amongst ourselves, with one another, Christian to Christian. We teach and admonish. Teach is positive. It is what the Christian life is all about and what you should be about. And admonish is negative. But be careful not to fall into this deception or that lie. Positive affirmation, negative warning. The translation that I'm preaching from, the English Standard Version, does a little bit of a disservice here because it obscures how these next phrases are connected. But the idea here is that the way we teach and admonish one another is by singing. We teach and warn one another in song. Paul uses three different ideas of Christian songs, and I'm not sure there's a a value in making a distinction between them. I think he's just heaping up words for effect to some degree. Um, But the idea here is that Christians are singing people. 
We're singing people. It is commanded in this passage that we sing. And it's commanded that we sing to one another. This is one reason, on a very pragmatic note, that a couple years ago we started curving our rows of seats at Gateway just a, just a little bit. This, this allowed us to better see one another across the room, and especially at least for those on the ends, it gave them a little bit more sense of singing to one another than just at a, a screen, you know, up in the, the middle of a wall. Because there is a sense when we sing, we're singing to God, but also that we're singing to one another. This is a tremendously important point. Finally, whatever we do, he said, do it all in the name of Jesus with thanks to God. And that's a fitting catch-all, all for Jesus. Everything for Jesus, because he's our prize. He's our greatest treasure. He's our desire above all things. So... The idea here is Paul lists all these good things, but I want you to keep in mind what's going on here. This is not so much a to-do list as it is saying, hey, these are the things that characterize what's above. These are the things that characterize Christ. Love Christ. Desire Christ. Put on Christ. Put on these types of things that resemble Christ. Not externalities. Some of them are. Some of them are things that we do outwardly, like sing. But some of them are internal. Because even notice with, with singing, right? It, are we just to, to use our tongues? No, but it says also singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing in our hearts to God. We're, we're, we're also talking about putting on attitudes like meekness. We're, we're, we're talking about things that are heart-rendered. So you can't judge this solely by what you see on the outside. But we're putting on a spiritual wardrobe that looks like Jesus. As we desire Jesus more, and we put on the good things of Jesus, it allows us to push out the evil things of the world. And in that way, Christians' lives start to look different. They start to look like people who seek the things from above, who have set their minds on things from above. They look like a transformed community. And while there's plenty of personal application in this passage, I do want to come back to the idea that so much of this passage is stressing that we do these things as a community. And so if you are not part of a local church, you are going to find yourself frustrated in your attempts to live a holy life. You can't do it apart from the church. And it can be an indication that you might not really belong to Christ at all. Christians are people with a heavenly calling. And that heavenly calling begins with a worldly dying. What does your life look like? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a heavenly calling, that you have bought us, that you have brought us to your throne, that you have made us holy, 
You've called us blameless because of what Christ has done. You've looked at us in all of our guilt and on account of Jesus' blood declared us innocent. Help us now to live the type of lives you have called us to live by your Spirit. May we not be passive in this task, but may we be active sin fighters, killing it, putting to death anything that is in us that remains of this world and this life. Use this season to waken our souls to the things that we still must die to so that we both as individuals and as a church here at Gateway might resemble our Savior and so glorify Him in all that we do.